Hey, hey, welcome back to Whatever Comes to Mind. This season, we are talking about true crime. Today, we are getting into the Cleveland Torso Murders, which are, of course, unsolved, which is the theme of these past episodes. Um, if you are interested in true crime or just miscellaneous random stuff, come back, subscribe, follow me. Um, you'll get to hear a bunch of cool, interesting cases and whatever comes up in season three. Um, last season we did history and news and it was so interesting, so fun. Um, go check that out if you haven't already and go listen to last week's podcast. Um, maybe not last week's. I haven't done one in a really long time. I'm very sorry. So last month's podcast. (laughs) Um, last month we went over the, uh, New Orleans axe murderer and I found most interesting from that case the day that I forget what day it was man I should really know more information about that but anyways um the day that the axe man sent out a letter saying if everybody in the city of New Orleans is listening to jazz music I will not kill them and if someone is not listening to jazz I will kill them that's not the exact words I'm paraphrasing of course so basically what he's saying is um all of New Orleans by 7 p.m. or something like that better be listening to jazz music and if you're not I'm going to kill you and it is to be noted that no one died that day um and I saw a theory about that from BuzzFeed Unsolved go check out their video on it um they theorized that that the killer was like on a business trip or on vacation and simply could not be in town that day so he just wanted to scare the people by telling them if you're not listening to jazz music i'm gonna kill you and i think that's interesting just an interesting take to the whole jazz music killing thing um It is also to be noted that that was one of the most lively nights of new orleans it was said that people were music was playing loud people were excited we're not excited but like it was a groovy night okay like I don't know that I would be that groovy if if someone had threatened to kill me if I wasn't listening to jazz music um but anyways that's not what today is about um you know we're talking about the Cleveland torso murders today yay I've actually read up and watched a couple videos on this already so I know what I know a good amount about it, but I'm reading from the book that uh, this whole season is based off of. It's called Unsolved Crimes, Infamous Cases That Have Puzzled the Greatest Minds by Sarah Herman. Um, I really like this book. I just think it gives a great summary. Um, And yeah, that's just, that's that. If you're interested in true crime or just anything miscellaneous, subscribe, follow me, come back for more. And Go watch last season's episodes. Um, Yeah, without further ado, let's get into the Cleveland Torso Murders. So these murders took place between 1934 and 1938 in Cleveland, Ohio, United States of America. Despite the efforts of one of Chicago's finest detectives, this murderous rampage in 1930s Cleveland left a host of unidentified dead bodies and a police force baffled. So that's the opening segment of this. Um, Let's get into it. There is still some debate around the number of victims whose lives were ended by this particular Cleveland murderer. Some say there were 12 official victims, starting with the discovery of Edward Andrusi's body in September 1935. 
but an unsolved murder from the previous year might mark the true start of the, of the spree. The Lady of the Lake, as she became known, was spotted by a carpenter on September 5th, 1934. He was taking a walk along the shore of Lake Erie when he came across the remains of a woman's lower torso and thighs, the lower legs amputated at the knees. Her upper torso was later found about 30 miles away. Her head was never found. This there, uh, sorry. This was before DNA analysis, so without dental impressions, fingerprints, uh, the torso arms, the torso's arms were missing, or a face for a family member to recognize. It was very hard for police to identify the victim, and um, I just want to notice the fashion that this body was amputated. Sounds like to me like it's a medical like like they know what they're doing. Like it sounds like a doctor did this. Like I feel like if I were a murderer. And I was going to cut off their legs. I feel like I would have to know what I'm doing. Because cutting through bone kind of just seems a little... Like, you need the tools for that. I don't know if you just hack them off or something. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a murderer either. So, it just seems like something a doctor would do. But I guess anyone can do it. Maybe maybe a carpenter. Maybe the carpenter guy who found the body did it. Who, who knows? Um, but that was just something I noticed when I was reading about this. I was like, I feel like if you're going to amputate someone, you got to know what you're doing. But I guess they're already dead. Anyways, moving on. Um, all right. A Jane Doe meant there was little information to go on and the investigation soon dried up. Detectives thought the woman had probably been dead for about three months and was in her 30s. Other than the surgical precision with which her body had been cut up, another notable detail was that her skin had a reddish tinge, as if it had been treated with some kind of chemical. So I was right. Very sick surgical cuts here um they did say that the woman had been dead for about three months and was in her 30s so i don't know why they didn't just search records for miss for um um for missing women who dot who went missing three months ago and were never found and were in their 30s but maybe they didn't keep records i don't know i feel like if i were an investigator that's the first place i would go but i guess you also can't like you can't be sure to know when they died i don't know it's that's just kind of puzzled me when i first read that i was like mm. <laughs> all right um moving on the butcher of kingsbury run for many the beginning of bushberry oh god <sighs> starting over for many, the beginning of the Butcher of King Kingsbury Run story starts with the discovery of Andrassi's body just over a year later on September 22nd. As the name suggests, most of the, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I can't talk today. As the name suggests, most of the bodies were found in Kingsbury Run in what was then a deprived part of Cleveland. The depression had hit the city pretty hard. So this is if you don't know your history, the Depression happened in the late 1920s. So this is about a decade after the Depression. And this part of Cleveland is still suffering from the damages of the Depression. Um, once a thriving industrial center, the 1930s brought mass unemployment and poverty. Shanty towns in areas like Kingsbury Run and the Flats were where the, the destitute congregated. Food and shelter were scarce, but crime, prostitution, and gambling were rife. When Andrassi's body was discovered, his head and genitalias were missing. The victim had been described as a small-time troublemaker, 
who was involved in pornography and other unsavory business, not dissimilar from many of the area's locals. During the investigation into Andrassi's murder, police found the body of an older man not far from the scene of the crime. He was never identified, but his skin bore the same reddish tinge as the Lady of the Lake. I wonder if that red tinge was like acid or like cyanide or something, or uh, there's a chemical that people ingest and it gives off an almond scent. I think it's cyanide. Maybe it's arsenic. No, it's not arsenic. I think it's cyanide. Um, that maybe that reddest tinge was cyanide, but I guess back then maybe they didn't have a definite test for that. Um, I, of course, I'm not a police forensic toxicologist or anything, but that just sounds like cyanide to me. Um, I also did want to mention about the la- the about Indrasi, who was. In the pornography business. So maybe the person who's doing this crime has something pitted against um, uh, the pornography business. I don't like prostitutes and like the sex business. Like I just I feel like maybe that's their motive here. But no one knows who did it. So if we can't find who did it, there really is no definite motive either. Um and this person obviously is not discriminating against gender because men and women have been found decapitated. So who knows? All right. Anyways, moving on. Um, the man was never identified, but his skin bore the same reddish tinge as the Lady of the Lake. Both men's heads were found buried in shallow graves nearby, and then the bodies kept coming. A few months later, on January 26, 1936, during one of the coldest Midwest winters on record, there was another grim discovery at the back of the White Front Meat Market on Central Avenue. Wrapped in newspaper and carefully packaged inside two blankets were the lower half of a woman's torso, her thighs, a right arm, and a hand. This was all that remained of of Flo Polilo, a 41-year-old woman who had been convicted of prostitution and illegal liquor sales in the past. So there's a pattern showing up here with people doing illegal things, and maybe this uh, the torso killer was a doctor who wanted to right all the wrongs in the world and was killing people who were doing crime. Um, that's just, I, I'm just saying, maybe I'm just the smartest person alive. Um... Um, okay, sorry, moving on. Over the next few years, body parts were discovered belonging to 11 other John or Jane Doe's, along with some other victims who are less widely thought to have been killed by the butcher. Unlike many serial killers whose victims fit a certain profile, the Cleveland killer was indiscriminate. The bodies belonged to both women and men of different ages and ethnicities. Some were unidentifiable and others had no no one to identify them in large part because many of the victims were vagrants with no one to miss them. There was a growing anger to the, at the police and newly appointed safety director, Elliot Ness, known for enforcing prohibition in Chicago and bringing down famed mob, mob leader Al Capone, who was having no such luck in Cleveland. Something needed to be done. On August 18, 1938, Ness and 35 people of... Oh my God, I'm so sorry... Ness and 35 police officers descended on Kingsbury Run, rounding up 63 men and searching the deserted shacks. Then they burned the Shantytown to the ground. So, 
Ness believed that the killer was someone who was hiding in the Shanty Towns. I don't know why he believed this. I don't know where he got that from. But it was stuck in his head that this person was poor and living in the shanty town by the lake. And so what he and these officers did was go search these shanty towns and arresting people. And when they finished arresting people and searching, they burned it down, thinking that that would burn the killer's home down or at least injure the person as it was going on. Um... But it didn't, it obviously didn't work because that didn't solve the case. (laughs) Moving on. Maybe Ness's raid had successfully apprehended the killer, or maybe the police presence and destruction of the area put the butcher off. But either way, the killing stopped. Okay, I'm pretty sure that got cut off. Um, But I forget what I was saying. That that totally got cut off. I got a FaceTime call. I'm so sorry. Um, But we were talking about how the police raid stopped the killings um sorry i gave you wrong information before whatever um this raid stopped the killings so maybe the killer did live there and the burnings they burned him to death or something i don't i don't know moving on in july 1939 the first proper suspect in the case was arrested frank delazo was a 42 year old bricklayer who'd lived with flo palillo and knew edward andresi he quote-unquote confessed to Pillillo's murder, and although it's widely thought this, this con- that his confession was the re- result of police brutality and coercion. Before he could stand trial, he was found dead in his cell. The police claimed he had hung himself, but the public and the coroner were suspicious. The little, the, oh God, the Lezel had broken ribs when he died, injuries he had s- sustained while in custody. I'm sorry, I'm really not the best at talking, but... So, this guy steps forward, and he's like, I did it. Or he confessed to one of the murders, and I don't know why... So he confesses to one murder, and now they're like, he did all of them. Now, in my head, that's more reason to suspect that not all of them were by the same person. That maybe it was a group, or maybe... One person did one thing, and then it just became a copycat. Like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like that's all the more reason to be like, um, so you only did one, or are you confessing to all? Like, I feel like it's weird to confess to one and not the rest. But here's what I'm also thinking. So he was found dead in his cell. So what if the actual torso murder, murderer saw this and was like why is he confessing for my murders like that's not fair and then decided to kill him in prison like i guess sneak in there and strangle him to death um that that's possible um i do think his death is a little suspicious but um i don't know um moving on let me turn the page um okay a suspect doctor. There's another name that crops up time and time again in relation to the Cleveland case, Dr. Francis Sweeney, a well-connected surgical resident. He was the cousin of a congressman with a promising career ahead of him. He was also thought to be Ness's prime suspect in the case, but there was never enough evidence to pin any of the murderers murders on him. Sweeney was born and raised in the Kingsbury Run area, His mother had died of a stroke when he was nine, and his father had suffered from what was described as psychosis. Psychosis? Um, yeah. 
spending the last year of his life in asylum. Like his father, Sweeney suffered from mental health problems. A violent alcoholic, according to his wife, he had remained in a drunken stupor from 1929 to 1934 when they separated. 1934 was also the year the Lady in the Lake was found. In fact, Sweeney's mental health was one of the reasons he was originally excluded in a po as a possible suspect because he spent much of his time in this period at the Sandusky Soldiers and Sailors home, sobering up and being treated. When one of the victim's legs was found near, the, near to the home, however, the police brought him in for questioning. It's believed he failed a number of polygraph tests, but the evidence wasn't enough to bring a charge against him. So, I have a suspect. It's a doctor. His dad's got mental health issues. He's got mental health issues. And he's a drunk, but he spent the years that the killing was going on in a mental health asylum or a, not asylum or just a, a, a place where he could sober up and get help. And they didn't think it was him until one, one of the body parts showed up near the place. And then they did, they investigated him and there wasn't enough evidence against him. I'm just, I'm going over this and I'm like, I, I think I've just seen too many crime shows to believe that it's him like what if he hired someone to go kill those people but also where's the where's the motive like what like these people seem so random like what do they have in common the book doesn't tell me but there, there's got to be some similarity behind them and if we find that similarity it's you're that much closer to figuring out who the, the heck did it I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Anyways, moving on. On August 25th, 1938, Sweeney had himself committed to a mental hospital and is thought to have stayed in institutions until his death in 1964. Coincidentally, 1938 was also the year the last butcher victim was found. Ness, for his part, was so convinced of Sweeney's guilt. After 1938, he received incoherent postcards from someone who claimed to be the killer. Signed, F.E. Sweeney. Maybe the good doctor was not so good after all. Um, I, the letters, the letters, the letters, the letters. I don't know, I'm just very, this whole case, I'm like, they get one piece of evidence, and I'm like, are you sure? Like, um, are you sure? I don't know, I'm a little iffy. I'm a little iffy about that. I do think that that someone was trying to play with him. This Ness guy, no offense to him, sounds kind of like a jerk. Like he sounds like he's arrogant and pushy. And maybe someone wanted to press his buttons, so they started faking to be this killer, Just and they wanted to frame this Sweeney guy to, like, get the police off his tail. So they this the actual killer is framing Sweeney because he doesn't want the police to get on his butt, which makes sense. Like, I wouldn't see a letter from the killer saying, I'm the killer, signed, here's my name. Like, I just, I feel like that's not something a killer would do. That's like turning yourself in. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. It just doesn't, it does not make sense to me. Um, okay, anyways, here's, there's another section called Strange Suspicion, just a theory about um, what happened. So I'm going to read that to you and then we'll, I'll talk about just 
some extra information that I have. There are many who think the butchers simply moved away and carried on killing elsewhere. A letter that could have been from the killer addressed to the chief of police was mailed to and printed in the Cleveland Press on January 1939. It read, You can rest easy now, as I have come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and diseased twisted bodies? So it sounds like this guy is just trying to do research, twisted, messed up research, but he's trying to advance science. And I, you know, I get that. I'm not backing him up, but I understand the need to make up some groundbreaking science thing. Like, I understand that. I get it. The letter implied that the killer was experimenting on the bodies, trying to prove some scientific theory. Quote, they called me mad and a butcher, he wrote. Quote, but the truth will out, end quote, was, quote, the truth, end quote, that the killer was a doctor who was now experimenting on bodies in California or elsewhere. In 1943, decapitated bodies were found in boxcars near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The removal of body parts with, sur with surgical positions was consistent with the Ohio killings. A spate of similar killings also took place in Newcastle, Pennsylvania between 1921 and 1942. But despite the Cleveland police being brought in to investigate a link, none was found. In 1947, there was a notorious murder, murder in California that bore some of the hallmarks of the Cleveland killer. The victim became known as the Black Dahlia, and the case was never solved. So that's what I was, that's the end of the, that was the end of the, the, this section, sorry. That's what I was going to bring up. A lot of people think that the killer, the Cleveland Torso Killer, went and did his killings and then went and killed the Black Dahlia. There is a section on the Black Dahlia in this book, and I, I think I, I'm going to read you a little bit about it. If you have not heard about the case, I it's it's really quite interesting. Um, na, 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 na. Sorry, I'm just trying to find the page. Um, yeah, I've also heard about this one. Because I'm just that, I'm that interested in stories about this. Um, okay. I'm just going to read a little bit about this because I don't know how much time I have and I just, I don't want to make this extra long and I feel like, yeah. But if you want me to read the entire thing, let me know and I'll do an entire episode on the Black Dahlia. Um, the date is January 15th, 1947 in Los Angeles, California, USA. So things are lining up already. Um, her body was discovered muli mutilated beyond measure. Her killer was never found. Her name was Elizabeth Short, but she's better known as the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short was born in Massachusetts and was 22 years old at the time of her death. Her family called her Betty. As a teenager, she'd spent time in Florida working as a cinema ashret and doing some part-time modeling. As a young adult, she traveled a lot, living in Miami, Atlanta, Boston, and California. She wanted to be a movie star, and Los Angeles was the place to be seen. The last time anyone reported seeing Short alive was on January 9, 1947, when she'd been waiting at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A. <clears throat> After depositing her luggage at, 
luggage at the Greyhound bus station as she had plans to travel onward to Boston, she'd been dropped off at the Biltmore, supposedly to rendezvous with her sister. Hotel employees reported seeing her making a number of phone calls from the hotel lobby before she left, heading towards 6th Street. Um, and that's it. That's all I'm going to read for now. Um, but if you do want to hear more about it, let me know, and I will read the rest of it, because Black Dahlia is an extremely interesting case. Um, I think next week we are going to go over the Zodiac Killer, because the Zodiac Killer is one of my favorite cases. I have been obsessed with that case for such a long time. I'm just so... Like, someone asked me if I could meet anyone and go back in time and just meet them, who would it be? And I I say the Zodiac Killer. I just want to know. I want to know who did it. Um, but yeah, that's a pretty famous case. I know you've all probably heard about it, but I just, I don't, I'm, like, literally obsessed with the case. Um, but yeah, it would be so interesting to, to just hear them say, we know, we know who the Zodiac Killer is. Um... But yeah, that's it for today. Again, let me know if you want to hear about the Black Dahlia. Um, I'm probably going to do that anyways, just because that's a really interesting case. Um, but that's it for today. Um, song recommendation of the week. Um, I don't really have one. I've kind of just been... I've kind of just been watching TV. And I don't, because I want this to be one of the seasons, me going over TV shows and the ones I've watched and just being like, oh, this one's good or this one's bad. But I I cannot, I simply cannot go through this episode and not mention Grey's Anatomy. I know y'all listening to this are probably like, Grey's Anatomy? Grey's Anatomy is not a show I was expecting to like. Like, I actually really enjoyed that a lot. Um... And I finished it. I started it around Thanksgiving. And now it's February. And I finished all 16 seasons. Like, it's so good. Um, and, yeah. So, instead of a song, I'm going to recommend you Grey's Anatomy. I just, I hope you guys watch it. Because I just, I'm so fond of that show. Um, but, anyways, that's it for today. Um, I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. Night, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. Whatever time it is, I hope it's great. I hope you are living your dreams, having a good life, all that. I will see you in the next episode. I don't know when the next episode is coming out, but let me know what you want to hear from the next episode. So I know I said I'd do the Zodiac, but it would kind of make sense if I did the Black Dahlia. What if I did both? What if I did both the Zodiac Killer and the Black Dahlia? I just feel like those are, maybe those are too loaded. Those cases are a little bit uh, grim. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I will see you in the next episode. Mwah. Goodbye. I also just wanted to mention that, like, I'm aware I'm a really bad reader. Like, I trip on all my words all the time. And for some reason, I just, I can't, I cannot read and think at the same time. So I'm sorry that I'm probably not the most easy to understand. But I really, I hope you enjoyed this episode either way. Um, yeah, that little side note. That's it. Goodbye.